that last song started with a phrase. I don't know if it makes you uncomfortable or not. I don't know if you uh, can picture God dancing, but it started with, you dance over me when I am unaware. Oh, it's been, uh, it's been a long time ago now. I don't, I, I'm trying to remember how many years, maybe 15, maybe 20. It's been a few years. Our middle daughter, Carrie, so we have a couple of middle, there's, it's two J's, two K's, and an S. We just didn't want to keep up with the, the standard. So it's K number one. She was working as a teacher, a student missionary, actually, in Ponape, a little island, French Polynesia, about that big. Third grade teacher, and we were, we were in contact, but the contact was not easy. It was difficult. It was difficult on the phone. There were, we got notes and letters back and forth. Um, uh, in, the, in that time process, we became aware that she wanted a guitar. She wanted it for a few reasons. She wanted it so that she might uh, sing with her students, so that she might be able just to express herself. She... She and her brother, her older brother Justin, had been learning the guitar. Um, the other older brother Jason was also learning the guitar, but he was in the Navy, I believe, at the time. So there was this guitar thing going on around our house. And so um, we, we tried to figure out how we would do this and get it shipped all the way to Ponape in time for her birthday. And so we figured it out as best we could. We, we got it boxed up in a way that we hoped would survive in the process and we sent it off. We had no way of knowing what happened to it between here and there. We had no way of knowing what her reaction was because we weren't present to see the reaction. But after it got there, we got to hear the story. And what we discovered was that there was a dance involved in the reaction. That um, when she went into the office, when she got this gift, when she saw what it was, her description back to us was, I did my happy dance. I didn't know she had a happy dance. She was a teenager when we left her, so, you know, happy dance? That, like, ended at 10. But she said, I did my happy dance right there in the office. And as we were just singing that line, I was picturing God's happy dance over you. The day you declared yourself for him, the day you were baptized, the day you said, I'm on God's side, the day you woke up, the morning you woke up, today when you woke up and said, God, I'm still on your side, there's a happy dance. And the happy dance is in heaven. That he would dance over you. That he would dance over us. So amazing, so cool, so mind-blowing to me. I, I... You know, I just can't imagine what God up there in his blue jeans and t-shirt is doing with his happy dance. You thought he wore one of those robes, right? (laughs) Hmm. This morning I want to lay out a next level discussion of the love of God. We've talked for years in this church about 
presenting and understanding the principles by which applications come forth, from which applications come forth. Because principles are timeless and they are cultureless and they are familyless. There is there's no principle based only in one spot. Principles spread across all cultures, all societies, all times, all socioeconomics. We want to talk today about one of the, the, the level down, the anchor principles when we're talking about the love of God. The principles expressed simply, it's personal. It's expressed maybe in a way that's less comfortable to us. But ultimately, what I want you to understand is that it's intimate. Now, as soon as you hear the word intimate, as soon as I hear the word intimate, I start to throw a lot of, a lot of luggage on that truck. When I hear the, the word intimate, I, I start to think of only one of the aspects of sort of the descriptions of love. But I would argue that the principle, no matter how you describe love, the principle that is anchoring and is foundational to that description is that it is intimate. It is impossible to love without a level, a layer, a depth, a connection with what is intimate. As we talk today, I hope to convince you of this principle. But more than just convince you of this principle, I hope to call you to an application of this that might change the way you love. Would you join me in prayer? Father in heaven, we are we're embarking on, on one of the anchor principles of Christianity, one of the anchor principles of your relationship with mankind from the beginning, from creation, from time immemorial. It has always been personal. It has always been intimate. I pray that you will help us today to get a grip on how that relates to how we love. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to, I want to give you a picture, a, a story, a, a little glimpse into one application of this. It's one of the stories you're, that's familiar in Scripture. You've probably heard it. You've probably run into it before. It's that story when the disciples are crossing the lake, the Sea of Galilee, and they come upon a storm. It's not the storm where Jesus is absent and he comes walking up behind them. That's not the, that's not the story. This is a story where Jesus is present. The storm is raging. Jesus is present. And as the storm rages on, Jesus continues to nap in the back of the boat. Are you familiar with the story? 
The story's starting to, to, to pick up in your mind. Some imagery starting to rise, big, big waves growing, crashing over the sides, wind, rain, this destructive force of nature coming at them, this destructive force that may be beyond nature, that may be stirred up by Satan himself in an attempt to take the whole crew down in one fell sweep. And they're in the boat in the back. It's just relaxing. Arms spread, eyes closed, little comfy blanket is Jesus. What, Jesus doesn't snore? You snore. Yeah, everybody says they don't. I heard somebody over there say, not me. I didn't hear anyone over here say, not me. In the midst of this storm, when it looks like they're all going to die. In the midst of this storm, boat is rocking, waves are pouring in. There are people on this boat who understand this lake, who understand sailing. These guys have told all of their uh, unaware friends, get anything you can and start bailing water out of this boat. More water inside, less chance we survive. Bail. And so I imagine all 12 of these guys finding anything, their hands, a little bucket, their hat, whatever they've got, they're bailing water. Everybody's trying to throw it out faster than it can come in. Finally, somebody says, hey, the answer's in the back of the boat and he's asleep. Somebody wake him up. They go and wake Jesus up. Do you not care that we're going to die? Come on. Jesus wakes up and he says, guys, relax. Enjoy. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Can you imagine how fun this ride would have been had they really understood that Jesus was not going to allow them to die? I have been out in storms. When you're out in a storm and you're comfortable that you're not going to die, it becomes the, the, just an amazing roller coaster ride. It really does. When you're rolling with a storm and the winds are blowing and howling and rain is blowing on you and you're out there doing your thing and you know you're not going to die, it actually becomes fun. But you have to know you're not going to die. And they hadn't figured that out. Jesus gets up and in this moment he simply says to the wind and the waves and whatever is stirring them up, peace, quiet down. Be still. And they just settle right down. The disciples had seen a lot. Healings. Jesus touches lepers, doesn't get leprosy. He he touches blind men. He puts mud on their eyes. Now they can see. Jesus has done some amazing things in front of these guys, but until this moment, we don't see this reaction. When Jesus calms the sea, the disciples fall down, the Bible says, and worship him. And they say, even the wind and waves obey him, like death and blindness and evil spirits wasn't cool. Wind and waves, now that's, that's something to think about. Here's my point. The power of Christ was an interesting thing to watch until it became personal. It was a cool story until it met their need. It was an event 
until it became theirs. Anybody else like me convinced before you were converted? Uh, in, in the Adventist church, we have really good answers to the questions of Scripture and of the world. We really do. Christianity has great answers. Adventism has the next layer of good answers. I remember being a 17-year-old kid who had seen this thing twice, back to back. Evangelist came in once, came back a couple weeks, months later, did it again. I, and by the second time, was like, yep, 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 yep. I get it. This makes sense. I'm in. Convinced. I was absolutely convinced that this is what the Bible taught. But it took all the way through college into my first job as a pastor before I was converted. Till somebody said, the grace of God is what you need and what Jesus bought. And it became personal. And it went from being a cool story about what the Bible taught to a transforming conversion of who I was. If you're sitting here today and you're 18, 16, 25, 85, and you have yet to recognize that this was personal and this was for you and Jesus' death was about your rescue, if you still think Jesus' death is for rescuing bad people and you have not noticed that you're one of them yet, you are. And if you're still not convinced this is personal. I pray that you will become convinced today. Because if that happens to you today, there will be weeping, but they won't be sad tears. There will be a transformation in the way you see all of Scripture and the way you see your relationship with God that cannot be changed. Because once these eyes have opened, you can't close them. So there's this great picture within the context of the New Testament in Matthew chapter 22. The background of the story there is pretty simple. The the Pharisees are at it again. The Sadducees have failed with Jesus. The scribes have failed with Jesus. So the Pharisees are saying, well, lightweights, we'll take care of this. And they get a lawyer to come with them. Everybody needs a good lawyer once in a while. They get this lawyer to come with them and have this challenge match with Jesus. We're going to read the passage in a minute, but I just want you to catch the end of the passage before we read it. Jesus answers this lawyer with the the question being, what what are the most important things in the law? He answers the question. the The answer is great, and we'll talk about that in a second. But I want you to get the end of the story so that you can see how the rest of the story is affected. He says, all of the law and the prophets. He's saying all of Scripture. He's not describing some specific piece. It's a way of sweeping his hands out across all of Scripture. He's saying all of the revelation of God thus far hangs on those two things. All of the revelation of God hangs on the two things we're going to read. Those of you who are aware have already jumped ahead of me, right? You've already started thinking about what those two things are. This is what Jesus says, all of your activity, your understanding of God, the revelation of God hangs on. I want you to get and hang on to the word, hangs on. 
In our house, we have pictures. You have pictures in your house? We've collected these pictures over the years. We went on a cruise. Don't do this, by the way. We bought a picture, way overpriced. We were traveling in Egypt. We bought a picture. I don't know if it was overpriced or not. Still one of the coolest pictures ever bought. We're in Peru. We got one really cheap, hand-painted by a lady there in that, that sort of flea market thing. It's a spectacular little picture. Super cheap. These have become the collections of things that are around our house. They're not just pictures to us. They're representations of memories. Like most pictures, right? As the, as the children's story was going on today, we're working at slides. I, th- I think I still have slides. I have slides in my first evangelistic series still. I don't know what I expect to do with those things. They're antiques. You have some black and whites at your house, those little photos that are in the album, with the little paper clippy thing on the corner that your mom put on. You have those? These pictures are statements about memories and places and events of our life. Each one of those pictures represents an important place and time for us, but they each hang on the same thing. Each of them hangs on a little nail in the wall. It's interesting, isn't it? Jesus said, everything you know about the revelation of God hangs on these two things. Don't miss it. It's Matthew chapter 22 if you want to find it on your device or in your, in your Bible. Beginning at verse 34 going to verse 40. I'm skipping the first couple just so you can find those in context, but I'm going to pick, take, jump down to verse 36. When this lawyer, this man comes to him and he says, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? He's not saying this just because he wants the information. He's saying this to try to back Jesus into a corner, into an argument. Jesus, again, as always, comes out on top of these things. It says, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. He's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. What is the greatest commandment? What's the most important thing you can do? Love the Lord your God with everything you have. Let me ask you a question. Do you love anything with everything you have? Do you remember thinking that you did? Do you remember falling in love? Maybe it was a puppy the first time. You know, at a Christmas or a birthday, you got this puppy and you thought, oh, I love this puppy. Oh, this smells awesome. And you just go through all the little, the squealy things that people do when they fall in love. You know, the emotions are pouring out. There's, if, if, depending on who you are, there might even be tears as you embrace this puppy. It's cute and it's little and you're hauling it around. And you take it to bed with you that night in spite of your parents saying, don't do that. It leaves you a little present on your pillow. And in spite of the present, you think still it's awesome. And you've just given yourself entirely to this puppy. You love it completely with all your heart, soul, and mind. Day two comes. And your parents say, don't forget, you have to feed it. And you say, oh, I love it, I'll feed it. And so you get the food and you open it. It's the first time maybe you've ever used a can opener. You open the food, you put it out there for the puppy, and you watch the puppy eat. And you just embrace and enjoy this puppy's activity. It's so cool, I love this puppy. And day three comes. And your parents say, don't forget, you have to clean up after the puppy this morning. He made some mistakes in the house. 
Make sure you get the carpet clean. And in your eight-year-old little head, you think, what? Okay. I love my little puppy. And your mom gets you a towel, and she gets you some cleaners, and you go over to find the place in the carpet where the puppy made his little mistake, and you start cleaning, and you smell the puppy's mistake, and you think, this puppy kind of stinks. And you rub, and you clean, and you swash, and you clean. And pretty soon you start thinking, maybe the puppy should sleep outside. And day four comes, and day five comes, and day six comes, and day seven comes. And a week has passed, and your parents say, don't forget, you're in charge of making sure the puppy gets food and water and cleaning up after the puppy. And pretty soon you're like, really? It's a responsibility? You mean by by accepting this gift that I loved, I now am bound to this thing? I, I, it's like an anchor around my neck. I can't go anywhere without remembering to take care of the puppy. You thought you loved it with all your heart and mind and soul. Do you remember falling in love? Standing there before the preacher in a place like this, pledging all of you to the person in front of you. It's one of the coolest things I do to stand there next to people as they pledge their eternal life to this other person. I love watching it. I love the the honesty of those moments. I love the words that are written. When people write their own vows, they commit themselves to some serious stuff. And I love that moment when they're looking at each other. Usually there are tears. Usually it's the guy. (laughs) Tough guys, we're all like, yeah, we're good. And as they stand there committing themselves to stuff that I'm listening and thinking, you'll never do that. But thanks for trying. I've been married... For more of my life than I have been unmarried. I have been committed to this woman with everything I can give. But I can tell you right now, all of my heart and soul and mind, etc. Don't always join me. Sorry, honey. Truth. Don't look at your spouse right now because they're wondering how you feel. And if you look at them, they're going to know. Here's the deal. The call of God to love him like that requires more than a human can naturally provide. It requires an amazingly transformed It requires acquiring something we don't have on our own. And that's just the first one. He doesn't stop. He says this is the first and greatest commandment. The second one is like it. You shall love your neighbor 
as you love yourself. It's an interesting thing. Are you familiar with the golden rule? Also in the scriptures, Matthew chapter 7. You remember the story? You remember the golden rule? Do unto others as they what? Yeah, you want to do unto others as you would like them to do to you. Right? When Jesus states this, Jesus says, this is the fulfillment of the law. To love another as you would like to be loved, that's the fulfillment of the law. Paul will say the same, same thing. Owe nothing to your neighbor except to love your neighbor as you love yourself. This is the fulfillment of the law. You notice the different word? It does not say that loving your neighbor is that which hangs all of the law and the prophets. It says this is the fulfillment of the law. It says you want to know what it means to act out the things God is calling you to act out in your world? Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Love your neighbor selflessly. Love your neighbor transparently. Love your neighbor in a way that connects you to them so that you would treat them in a way that you would like to be treated. Get the, get the picture? So when your neighbor has a messy, nasty yard, ask yourself, what would I wish they would do for me? It's a pretty simple explanation then as to what you're gonna, how you follow up, right? It's a really simple explanation to yourself as to how you should follow up. How would I like my neighbor to do, what would I like my neighbor to do to me if my yard looked like that? First, I would like my neighbor not to talk bad about me to my other neighbors, right? I don't want my neighbors to be looking around saying, have you seen what these goofballs are doing? Are you kidding me? There's a car parked in their yard and... I don't know what they're up to. You ever parked a car in your yard? You have to kind of be from a certain mindset to park a car in your yard. I parked a car in my yard before. Honesty. Didn't stay very long. If once you see what your neighbor's yard is like and you know what you would like to have them do to you, you know what you're called to do. Right? How you doing? You see, this is where intimacy takes place. Because to get involved in your neighbor's messy yard is an intimate thing. Right? It's like being the first person to say, I love you, in a relationship. Does anybody do that? It, don't raise your hand. Because if you didn't do it to the person you're with now, you did it to someone else, and that would be a bad revelation, right? So if you've ever been the person to be the first out the door with I love you, you know how stinking scary that is, right? Because when you say that, they may not say it back. <laughs> oh, I said it multiple times. Well, I got, I don't like you like that. I'm here to tell you, if you stay on it, it wins. Be courageous. Sometimes it pays off. Walking into your neighbor's yard and picking up whatever puts you at risk. 
Because your neighbor may say, get out of my yard. Right? But if that's what you wish they would do for you, that's the intimacy of your next step. How are you feeling about this? Did you come to church to get this today? Because you probably didn't. But underlying every act of love is an act of intimacy. To cross a line that puts you at risk in the other person's eyes. To step into their space. To step into their stuff. To say, I'm gonna risk this. It's crazy, but I'm going to. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do unto others as you would like them to do to you. Owe nothing to your neighbor. This is Romans 8. They owe nothing to your neighbor except to love them like Jesus would. This is where Jesus says it. After that, Jesus says, on these two commands, hangs all the law and the prophets. On this kind of connected, intimate, engaged relationship with the world and with God, hangs all the law and the prophets. We seem to think these are like Oh, you know, the easy test questions. These are not the easy test questions. These are write a five-page essay in the next 15 minutes questions. That's what these are. Because we look at all those other rules and we say, well, wait, there's rules about what I can wear, how I can cut my hair, what I can eat, where I can go, when I can do what, and how I can do this, and the things I'm not supposed to do when I'm doing that. And we think, man, that's a lot of stuff. And Jesus says, don't worry about all that stuff. Love me with everything you have. With your time. Love me with your talents. Love me with your physical body. Put your body out there in the way you express your love for me. Love me in a surrendered way to all the people around you. That's what all of this stuff was about. So I want to take you back to page two of your Bible. Not page one. Page two. When the description gets personal. Page two. God formed man out of the dust of the earth. He speaks everything else into existence. And then he starts forming Gets down. I always picture God on his hands and knees. I don't know why. It just seems like if you're going to form something out of the dust, you have to be down there in the dirt with it. Now, God is God. He could have formed it like... And it would have been just as cool. It would have been less intimate. So I picture it like I feel when I'm modeling clay. You ever modeled clay? you got to get your hands a little dirty to model clay, right? He starts feeling the dirt. He starts shaping the man. He pulls all of the, the things together. He starts putting the organs inside, layering the clay on top of the clay. He starts putting the muscle tissue, the rocks, or, and the, the bones all together. He starts connecting things together. All those parts had to be there, right? And then he gets all the pieces together, pulls out those toes Lays in the toenails, even the little one. And he says, you look good. 
And then he goes to the head. And leans over on those lips he's just formed. And across that nose that he's just formed. And he breathes into man his own life-giving breath. There is no more intimate picture between God and man than this one. Breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. And then, and only then, he becomes a living being. The first time Adam opened up his eyes, God was this close. When Adam opened up his eyes, God had his mouth over his nose. Have you ever imagined that? Because it's intimate and it's personal to love like that. It's personal. It's not a human being thrown together like the, like the cat and the dog. I, I, I know those of you who are cat and dog lovers, you, 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 you're sure that God breathed into him the breath of life. He didn't. He just said, let there be a dog. And it was a cool thing. I mean, the dog's amazing, but it's not a person. And it's not that relationship. Breathed into him the breath of life. Now, don't, don't let Eve get away from this either, because he forms Eve out of a rib from Adam. He forms her too. I don't think he formed her and suddenly she popped to life either. Because if you really think about this, he's forming the man, he's forming mankind. He must have breathed into her the breath of life as well. And the first time Eve opened her eyes, she was receiving a kiss from God. By the way, so was Adam. Don't be too weirded out by it, guys. Your impressions of God as male and all that, just let them go. Because it's intimate. Because it's personal. Because to love like God is intimate and personal. And the church, us, you, me, are called to love our world, our neighbors, our friends, our enemies like that. On these two commands. Hang all the law and the prophets. The key to understanding that love is that it is intimate. It is intimate. If you miss this word, you miss the point. If we don't recognize that all real love is intimate, we miss the point. Here's the deal. Most of us want intimacy without love. That's pornographic. Or we want love without intimacy. That's self-indulgent. And they both are more about self than about other. And what the Bible says is this is about other. This is other-focused. This is outward-focused. This is them not you. The best marriages, those of you who are married, if you've been married 45 years and you don't know this yet, your, your life's about to change. However, it's only for like, you know, the next 20 years. 
The best marriage is where both partners give 100% without expectation of anything. Because when you're giving yourself entirely to another person, you're loving in a way that's transformative to them and to you. And if you can do that without expectation of them doing anything for you back, this is the hard part, right? It is absolutely transformational to a marriage. Those of you unmarried kids, wherever your age is at, this is what you're looking for. Someone you can love without expectation of anything back. And someone will love you the same way. I know that's an expectation of something back. I recognize there's a problem. But that is what you're looking for. It also classically takes time. I'm beginning to hate that clock. I have a few other things to say. Did you see the Super Bowl? Raise your hand if you saw the Super Bowl. Raise your other hand if you were happy. You are there on behalf of Pastor Tim. God bless you all. The five of you. Tim and Anna would make you seven, which is, of course, a perfect godly number. (laughs) But they're not here. Two things I want to talk to you about in the Super Bowl. One was an Audi commercial. Did you see the Audi commercial? They, they did this very interesting commercial for a car company. They went through the Greek words for love. Did you see this? I was going to show it to you, but then I don't know what the rules about this are. I thought I might get the church sued. You know, the NFL is very, very picky about how you use their stuff. And I don't know if Audi's picky about it or not. I know they probably all have lawyers. So I decided not to show it to you. But you can find it on the internet. You can find everything on the internet. They went through the Greek words for love. And they gave you a short image, a very short clip of those various kinds of love. Love that is brotherly. The love of a friend. The love of a spouse. Complete and selfless love. And they went through each of them. Quickly. I mean, it's probably a 30-second commercial. It was beautiful. It was a spectacular representation of the fact that all kinds of love, no matter which one you're talking about, is intimate. Did you see the halftime show? Did you turn it off? Because it was like, oh my, really? I was glad I didn't have any little kids watching the Super Bowl. Because it was the opposite demonstration. And I know, don't, don't, don't start telling me it was, it was cultural and all that. Yeah, some cultural things aren't good too. Just because they're cultural doesn't make them good. It was two women displaying the worst interpretations of human love. And I'm not trying to hang a 
scarlet letter on them. It just represented the opposite truth. It represented human selfishness and brokenness in this most precious of God-given attributes. We corrupt love pretty regularly. We are selfish with love pretty regularly. And when you make eros, that intimate, truly relational love that is meant for a marriage, selfish, it leads to the worst of all kinds of human behavior, or at least some of it. I'm going to tell you now, this happens to mostly males, but it happens to females as well. Beware if you are indulging yourself in any kind of expression of eros, love, that is not selfless. If you are trying to experience that without the payment, the giving of intimacy, you are setting yourself up for a horribly corrupt mind and heart that is not sustainable, that like a drug will take you further into the abyss of darkness and you need to stop today. You probably will need an accountability partner who will call you on a regular basis and say, what's up with you? You will probably need some help, maybe a counselor, maybe a psychologist, or just a really close friend who you are intimate enough with to tell this to. But they must be of the same gender as you. Lay it out for them. Ask them to call you to account on this subject because this will drown you eventually if you don't get out of it. To me, that was a little taste of hell. It was a call to intimacy without commitment to a relationship that's not real. And we must be thoughtful and careful about what we allow into the windows of the soul. I want to wrap up here. In Ephesians chapter 1, this deep, holy commitment of God is expressed a little differently. 
but very powerful. The Bible says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ because that's what the four things. Praise him because, because he chose us in him, the hymn is Jesus. God chose us in Jesus because he knew of our sin, because he knew of our brokenness. He knew of our worst day on our first day. He chose us in Christ before the creation. I love the word foundation. This is a New International Version. I chose it because it, it says some things that are important. But I, I love the King James before the foundations of the world. He chose us before creation. He chose us. He chose you. He chose you. He chose your kid. He chose your spouse. He chose that cranky neighbor of yours. He chose your boss. He chose your employee before the foundations were laid. He knew them. And in Christ, he chose them. He chose to see them like Jesus. Before the foundations of the world were laid, He chose us to be as if we were holy. You got to get the picture here. He chose you as if you were better than you are. He chose you as an image of and a reflection of who Jesus is. He chose you before the foundations of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. I will look at them as if nothing ever happened wrong. I will look at them as if they never made a mistake. I will look at them as if they've never sinned. I will look at them as if nothing bad ever happened in their history. I will look at them as if they were Jesus Himself. At the foundation, before sin happened, he already knew. And he gave himself to this story. Not only to make it true in his mind, but to make it true physically and in reality. He chose to see us as holy in Christ. In love, and I don't want you to get caught up on this next word. We can talk about it in a second. Look if you're caught up on it. He chose the destination before the beginning of the trip. He chose the destination. From the foundation, he knew the destination of all who would choose Jesus. In love, he, God, predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. He chose us to be holy in His sight because He knew what they were going to do. He knew about the cross then because it was His intimate love for mankind, self-sacrificial, other-facing, other-interested, other-loving love that at that moment motivated the creation of man 
in spite of the reality of sin. And the sacrifice of Jesus was true that day. With that choice, the sacrifice of Jesus was locked into the story. Remember, Jesus says, no one takes my life, but I lay it down. Jesus is not the puppet of God forced to die on a cross to rescue some people he didn't want to work on himself. If Jesus is not one of the Godhead, then Jesus is some kind of weird sacrificial animal. People who claim that Jesus is not God have a really bad misunderstanding of this reality. God chose the Trinity, the Godhead chose before man was created to give themselves so that man could be covered by his grace, covered by his love, cleansed of our sin, washed in his blood so that we could stand before God without any sin on our record because as God looks at you and God looks at me, He doesn't see you, He doesn't see me, He sees Jesus before the foundations of the world. That's how He decided to look at us. Because of Christ, Jesus Christ, in accordance with the pleasure of His will, the will of the entire Godhead, the will of God, the will of the Spirit, the will of the Son, the will of the entire Godhead, because of their decision, because of their will, they would rather die than see you lost. Before the foundations of the world, the ultimate and intimate sacrifice, intimate self-giving love was laid out, laid down as the plan. We ask all the time, what motivated God to make man knowing that they would sin? It's pretty simple. Love. The ultimate willingness to show His love. The praise of His glorious grace which He has freely given us in Jesus, the one who loves. When God knelt down and breathed into the nostrils of Adam the breath of life, it was because of intimate, fully aware love. When Jesus showed up in the garden the day after sin to offer the same relationship that they had had the day before, it was because of intimate, self-sacrificial, fully aware love. When the prophets came year after year, decade after decade, to tell Israel, please, please don't go after these rocks and sticks. They're not real and they won't ever love you. And the sacrifices you're making are crazy and not something I'm asking you for. It was because of intimate, continuous, other-focused love. And when the fullness of time had come for Israel, God put on our skin 
degraded by thousands of years of sin and destructive forces on the planet. And he put in himself humbly the nature of man. And he was born on this little blue speck. Coming fully aware of the plan. That he might sacrifice himself. That he might make the ultimate step in the description of love. So that you and I could possibly choose restoration into the embrace of the family. The restoration of your children restoration of your brothers and sisters, the restoration of your marriage, the restoration of any relationship in your life will start with your decision to be selflessly connected to that individual. They can choose to refuse it. But if you choose not to engage it, it doesn't have a chance. If Christianity abandons the world, it doesn't have a chance. If the best best expressions of our love are internet outrage, it doesn't have a chance. requires intimacy. It requires that we walk across the line, look a person in the eye, and risk saying, what I'm trying to do right now is love you. Let's pray. Father, it is hard for us to recognize that you know all there is to know about us and that you still love us. It's hard for us to even admit to ourselves that we know all there is to know about us, but would help us to know without a doubt that you see everything and you still love us. Help the weak attempts at our love for you to grow. Help us to be touched so deeply by your willing sacrifice that we're transformed in heart. Help us to hear and listen to the voice of your Holy Spirit. Help us to figure out 
love our neighbor like you. In Jesus' name.